when you talk to more senior developers, you'll be amazed at their knowledge, but you'll also learn that they get stuck too. And I think that was great for me, seeing people who I looked at and thought, well, they know everything, not know something and realize that, okay, that's just, this is part of the job. We're all learning here. Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior developer job. I'm Alex and today I'm joined by Caitlin Greffley, who studied psychology before making the obvious leap to sales in the beer industry and eventually learned to code at a coding bootcamp. Since getting her first developer job, Caitlin's gone from strength to strength and even wrote a book called The Bootcamper's Companion, all about the things she wished she knew. I'm so excited to introduce you to Caitlin because she's lived the new developer experience firsthand and spent a lot of time reflecting on how to learn to code and break into tech. Two things you'll learn in this episode today. I'm a bit jealous of Caitlin though, because she got to meet my coding hero. You see, when Caitlin was first starting to code, she had this bold idea to tweet, asking if any developer near Portland would let her shadow them for a part of the day. And my programming hero responded and invited her to shadow him. You'll have to stay tuned to find out exactly who I'm describing. All I will say is that he's been on the Scrimba podcast, works at Microsoft, and some people call him the Uncle Roger of the coding world. You are listening to the Scrimba podcast. Let's get into it. It definitely was not a career that I set out to do from the beginning. I often look back in amazement that I ended up here. I got my undergraduate degree in psychology, and then I made the obvious leap to the beer industry from there. Um, I spent seven years in the beer industry, mostly in sales, and I was getting burnt out on that. And I was just trying to figure out some other career I could do. I was in my late 20s, I guess, at the time. I knew that I didn't want to travel as much as I was traveling. I wanted something that would be good for like my future goals of having like a family. And, you know, I wanted something that aligned with my life a little better than like the crazy traveling life of a beer sales rep had in line for me. I liked the part of my job at the time that was data analysis. So I started to go down that rabbit hole of seeing like how I could make that a career. And I even applied for a boot camp for data analysis and I got rejected because I didn't know how to code. And I just remember thinking like coding, like I don't know how to do that. I remember having friends learning it and I'd look over their shoulders and think like, oh God, what is that? That looks terrifying. And it never had like a pull on me or anything. I can't say this was something that was like always meant to be or anything. But at that point of realizing that a direction I was interested in, I need to learn to code. I was like, you know what, why don't I try it? So I think I pulled up Free Code Camp or one of those sites and played around a little bit. And I felt interested enough and I was impatient enough that I decided to just enroll in a coding boot camp. I'd written very, very little code by the time I started my first day of my coding boot camp. And that was fine because often in those boot camps, they teach you from nothing. They teach you hello world, you know? So that worked out for me. But, you know, I never saw myself as a coder, as a software engineer. I always imagined that to be just like guys in their basement playing video games and taking apart their computers in their spare time. Like <laughs> it didn't seem like I couldn't see myself in that role. That's a big problem, actually, because I think that does make up hopefully a reducing, but also a majority demographic of developers. Like it's largely men. And sometimes just like seeing someone who looks like you doing something makes you realize there's 
there's a possibility there. Yeah. And, you know, in the beer industry, I don't know if anyone will be surprised by this. It's also a very male dominated field. Like I felt comfortable in a male dominated field, but I also wanted to make sure that it suited my personality. I knew sales in a way suited my personality because I'm an extrovert. I like talking to people and I was nervous that that part of me wouldn't be fed in the tech industry. And it definitely has been even working remotely. I feel like I can be social and work with people and talk to people a lot more than I think I would have imagined based on the perception. I had of a coder from the outside. Before this boot camp, had you done any sorts of computing before? Yeah, I was into Excel. I was definitely one of those nerds. I enjoyed playing with that. And like I said, I did some data analysis for my job. So I got into using Tableau, um, which is a tool for analyzing big chunks of data. I liked taking those like big confusing chunks of data and making them into like a simple graph that could tell the story that I was trying to tell and that could easily explain to someone the point that I was trying to get across. I mean, that was that was my experience. Like I also, like most people, remember using MySpace and trying to play around a little to like make the background color what I really wanted it to be or something. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, pretty limited. I definitely still don't feel like other than coding, I don't feel like I can solve people's computer problems. I'll go home to my parents and they'll be like, this isn't working. And I'm like, I don't Oh, I wish I could say that. (laughs) I mean, I'm not an outsider. I'm very much in the industry, but sometimes I feel like, well, I should know more about the insides of a computer, you know, and like what makes things work and whatever. But then I'm also like, well, you know, that's never been part of my job. If it became part of my job, it would be cool to learn about. But for now, I've plenty to learn about just on the like code side. And I think it represents almost your your non-traditional path into tech as well. It seems like you didn't have much coding experience experience, just an inclination that it was something you wanted to do. And you also went 100% sure that coding was going to be an industry that satisfied your extroverted nature. And yet you took this really quite remarkable plunge, it sounds like, to commit and probably pay quite a bit of money to go to a coding boot camp. Can you take us back to that time and how you rationalized and, and thought about it? I often think about that time and think like, why did nobody stop me and just go like, whoa, slow down. What are you thinking? Glad we didn't. But yeah, I remembered so clearly the day that I was just, I had been feeling like I was ready to move on from my career for probably about a year. And I just had a day where I was snowed in in Las Vegas on a work trip that I had hated. And I was just like, that's it. And that was late February. And the next two weeks I did, you know, what I do, which is organize and categorize and think of all the possible career paths I could take and think of how realistic it was and how interested I was and the outlooks and tech and coding just made sense. You know, I didn't have to go back and get another degree or go get a master's degree, which I was nervous about spending too much time because, yeah, I think I was 30, maybe 31 at the time. What appealed to me about a boot camp? I think I paid $9,000 and it was going to take me six months. And on the other side, I could start a career and be starting with a salary close to what I was making after seven years in the beer industry. I took a small pay cut with my first job compared to what I was making, but it was, you know, and that was the starting point. And now I love coding 
And I, I think I would consider it something I'm passionate about. But at the time, I was drawn in by very practical things. Like this is an industry that I can have a flexible schedule. I can work remotely. I can support a family. Those were the initial things that made me think like, yes, I really want to try this. And so that was late February that I had that kind of breaking point. I was signed up for my boot camp, I think by like March 10th. What year was this, Caitlin? 2019, March of 2019. I signed up for that boot camp, paid $9,000 up front and just committed to it and thought, okay, I'll keep my job for three months. And if in that three months time, I'm not loving this, then I'll quit the boot camp and figure something else out. And in three months, I quit my job and I leaned completely into this new career. What was the state of the bootcamp landscape around then? Like, were there some prominent options to choose from? How did you choose? And did you factor in maybe taking a self-directed route into your path, like piecing together different courses and stuff like that for much less money, essentially? I definitely wanted to try and do a self-directed route. I remember trying to organize like different Udemy courses and stuff like that that would be much cheaper and thinking like, oh my God, I could basically create a bootcamp for, you know, three $300 based on all these different classes. I needed the mentorship and the guidance, I think, more than anything, because I knew so little about coding and the tech world that I would have gotten stuck and not known how to move forward. And I also didn't know what I was supposed to learn. You know, it's easy to look on Udemy and be like, okay, like a Python course and a React course, which one do I choose? And does one go with the other? Or would you never need to know both? I just needed some guidance. I needed a path laid out for me. And then I needed mentorship to be able to check in with someone and have them help me move past whatever problems I was stuck on. I don't think I ever would have gotten into this path had I done the self-directed route, which is why I like admire so much people who can go the self-directed route, because I think it's just so much harder and it's a really cool and cheaper way to go. And I'm just, I couldn't do it. Me too. Much respect to anybody who is not only learning to code, but almost like laying the train tracks while you drive the train. Because I think you pointed out something very astute, which is is that it's just so hard to know, like not only what to learn, like does Python go with JavaScript, for example, but even if you do figure out a path, answering questions like when am I ready to move on from JavaScript to React or do I learn HTML and CSS together? Like this imposes such a mental tax, which you could be spending on learning. Some boot camps are going to focus on like back end or front end or even things mobile development. Did you have something in mind or did you really go based on the credentials of the bootcamp? I did a combination of, I wanted a bootcamp that had, yeah, good reviews, good outcomes, which I don't know at the time that they had. I know that now there's a place that reports outcomes independently, which is a little more reliable. It might have been self-reported at the time, so I don't even know how good those outcomes really were. But my biggest thing was money and schedule because I had such an erratic schedule in my career at the time. I worked some nights, I worked some weekends, I was traveling constantly. And so I needed something that was completely on your own time. And that was how I ended up at 
thankful, which was the boot camp that I did, was because there was a set course and you had scheduled times every week, like 45 minutes to meet with a mentor, but everything else was just on your own time. And so I could do it at six in the morning. I could do it at 10 at night. I could do it in the middle of the day. I just needed to fit in like 20 to 25 hours every week during the week somehow. And that was what I needed. And so that limited my options significantly. So then from there, I narrowed it down to, you know, who seemed to have some of the best ratings and outcomes and what could I afford? People listening can't see my face, but I am astounded that you did this for six and a half months alongside your full-time job. I know before you mentioned that you were sort of, uh, you might look for something else, but I kind of just assumed you probably quit your job to do this full-time. The fact that <laughs> side by side is really impressive. So I quit my full-time job after three months. It was, oh my gosh, it was exhausting. I was so burnt out. And then I worked part-time at a couple of random jobs while I finished up the boot camp. Because I think for me, at least, the second half of the boot camp was far more time-consuming. Like the first half, I think I was able to cut back my work to about 30 hours a week. I became an efficient machine because I also worked remotely. It was just, it was about getting the work done, not about clocking and clocking out. And so that was also helpful. But the second half of the boot camp, you're also job searching and you're trying to perfect your portfolio, build a resume, network, all these other things. And I think that would have been really hard to do with a full-time job. Sorry about the interruption, but if you're curious about bootcamp mentors, we had one on the podcast. His name is Hussein, and he's very passionate about helping new developers land on their feet. In this show, Hussein will be your mentor. At the end of the day, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. Programming and just coding is like half the job. When you're at a job, it's like coding meets business meets people. You can be the greatest lead coder of all time, but when software as a business comes to the forefront, those skills can help you, but they won't get you to the finish line. There's three phases that you got to go through. The first phase is the learning phase. The second phase, which is just as hard as getting that first job. And the third phase is keeping that job. All different phases and all different things that you have to learn, but they all build on each other. I'm currently at Shopify. And before I found this job, I did a lot of interviews. I did about uh, 100 hours of technical interviews total. Link is in the show notes. I'll be right back with Caitlin in just a minute. But first, Jan the producer and I have a quick favor to ask from you. The best way to support a podcast you like, and therefore the best way to support the Scrimba podcast is to tell somebody about it. That's right, word of mouth, still valid in the 21st century. So if you're enjoying this episode, please share it with someone, be it on socials, on Discord, or in person. If you're sharing it on Twitter, don't forget to mention Alex. You'll find his Twitter handle in the show notes. He does read it all, he does reply to it all, and we all love seeing what you've learned from the podcast. If you're no longer on Twitter because of reasons, and if you're looking for a friendly coding community full of new developers just like you, check out Scrimba's Discord server. The link is and the show notes. This show goes out every Tuesday evening, London time. One week we're learning from an industry expert and another we're learning from a recently hired junior. So subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And now we're back to the interview with Caitlin. So it sounds like the bootcamp gave you a few things. It gave you a curriculum. It gave you the course materials, right? You also had a weekly session with a mentor, which you really valued. 
And I, I think something that can't be understated is based on the reviews and the landing page and stuff, you felt confident there was a job at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's something that a lot of self-taught developers lack sometimes, just believing in themselves and, and knowing where the destination is exactly. And at the same time, you know, you had the challenge, which was mustering the discipline essentially to show up and do this with nobody looking over your shoulder. What did you find more challenging? Was it actually learning to code or was it managing your schedule and keeping mentally positive throughout the journey because as everybody learning to code knows some days you feel like a coding god other days you feel like you're 10 stack overflow pages deep and you don't belong in the industry i mean i still have days like that one of the hardest things for me about the boot camp was how hard learning to code is how frustrating it can be how stuck you can get and i still get really stuck i still just feel like there's no way I'm going to be able to figure this out. Like, I just feel like I don't have enough knowledge. But when you're new to coding, it's harder to have faith in yourself that you will actually find the solution. I was building my first project and it was like a quiz. It was a Harry Potter themed quiz. And I was trying to go from one question to the next. So like one page to the next kind of. I could not for the life of me do it. I just remember thinking this is actually impossible. I don't know how anything is built ever. There's no way that there is a solution to this. And of course, I got on a call with my mentor and he helped me figure out the solution. But I think it was those moments of thinking like, there's no way I can figure this out. Is this easier for everybody else? Like, am I the only one really struggling with this? Does that mean that, you know, I don't belong in this field or in this job? And I think it's really hard. It's just you're learning a new language. You're being dropped into this foreign country that is development and while learning like multiple new languages and trying to rewire your brain to think in different ways than you have in the past. And also learning that like just because it's hard doesn't mean you're not good at it. Just because you're stuck doesn't mean you're not good at it. And even though I still get as stuck as I did back then, I don't get as frustrated as I did because I'm just a little more used to it. And so I think for for folks that are on that learning path, you are not alone. I think when you talk to more senior developers, you'll be amazed at their knowledge, but you'll also learn that they get stuck too. And I think that was great for me to see, was seeing people who I looked at and thought, well, they know everything. And then I would see them not know something and realize that, okay, that's just, this is part of the job. We're all learning here. What would you say is the importance of struggling? It is like a skill in this industry, right? The struggle, it's learning to kind of see a problem and think about the ways to get through it and think about all the tools you have at your disposal. And for me, like one of the things, because I definitely ask for help plenty, but one of the things I do before I ask for help in the industry, we call it rubber ducky, is I talk to a, you know, rubber ducky. I don't actually have a rubber ducky on my desk but I pretend like I'm talking to someone else and asking them for help and then I try and predict the questions that they'll ask me and that a lot of times helps me get further so I like to know by the time I'm asking someone for help that I have thought of all the possible things that I could think of to solve a problem so when I go to someone I can say you know I'm 
stuck on this, but I have tried looping over it. I've tried mapping over it. I looked on Stack Overflow. You know, I looked in our code base. So I think struggling, it's kind of more like you're taking the time to expand your problem solving abilities, I guess. So even if you don't solve the problem, that doesn't mean that you didn't like coding is so much about just your problem solving abilities. And so you can gain more tools. And in the beginning, you might only be able to think of one possible way you could do something before you need to ask for help. But the longer you're in the industry, you'll be able to think of, you know, two, three, four ways. And that's that struggling time is you thinking of well, if it's not this, maybe it's this. And if it's not this, maybe it's this. And then you get to the end of that rope or you reach, you know, a certain time limit that you've set for yourself and you finally realize like, okay, this is just not something that is in my capacity right now and that's okay. And so I need to find someone who might be able to shed some light on this. I'm going to reverse engineer your advice a little bit and pull out the two excellent points you made. Firstly, you said towards the end there, set a bit of a time limit, like almost time box yourself. And then when you go for help, you should and probably will have a demonstration of what you've tried already. And that I think will make someone more likely to want to help you because people love helping people who help themselves, basically, even in a team, by the way, it's not wholly unconditional. Like you can always be favorited and maybe they'll be willing to spend a bit more time with you if you have this personality where you help yourself uh, rather than sort of panic and go for help at the first sign of trouble. But also it gives the person helping some great jumping off points because they don't have to go through those two or three things you've tried already, they can probably jump to the good part. Definitely. And I think another thing that helps me sometimes when I'm struggling too is writing comments in the code of things that I've tried because I can forget easily like, okay, I tried this one thing and then, you know, maybe a couple hours I come back and I forget that I tried it and I do it again. Or when I'm explaining to someone what I need help with, I can forget everything as well. And so that's another thing that helps me writing out my problem, writing out the things that I've tried. And that helps me keep organized. And yeah, time boxing can be important, especially when you're on like a team with deadlines or if you're not and you're just like, I can see how big this problem is. And so I'm going to try and set aside a certain amount of time before I reach out. Sometimes I'll see something and think like, this should be an easy problem. So if I don't get there in an hour, I'll reach out. And other times it's like, okay, this is a pretty complex problem. So I might take two days before I reach out. And I think that's another skill that you get the more time that you code and struggle. Like estimating, right? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your book, which is The Boot Camper's Companion. What is the motivation behind this book and, and what is it all about? I noticed that you tweeted and published it in March this year. So it's obviously a few years in the making. You know, after I got out of my boot camp and got my first job, I immediately wanted to start talking about that journey and talking about, you know, the difference between your boot camp and your first job, kind of how to translate what you learn on your boot camp, sort of to process it myself. And then also I wanted to help other people who are making that transition or looking to make that transition. And I also wanted to help folks on teams that were bringing in someone who was maybe fresh out of a boot camp. So I kind of just got got really into like writing articles. I did some smaller talks and the more I talked about it, the more I would connect with folks who were going through a boot camp or were thinking about going through a boot camp. 
and we would do kind of coffee chats and they would ask questions. And I ended up having a lot of similar advice and that started to inform kind of articles I was writing or I would I would always write them, you know, this email after our coffee chat to be like, okay, here are the things that I suggested or mentioned might be helpful. And the emails just got longer and longer and longer. (laughs) And I thought like, okay, I'm saying a lot of, you know, I'm giving a lot of similar advice. And I do feel like I have this perspective and I still remember fresh in my mind, like what was hard for me and so confusing for me in a boot camp, especially as someone who had just zero tech industry experience, zero coding experience ahead of time. And so I just kind of thought, you know, why don't I compile everything that I kind of wish I had known or everything that felt confusing to me outside of tech, if it included like coding or actual technical things that book would be like a million pages long. But the things outside of it, like what is a project manager? What's a scrum master? What's agile? What, like, what does a day in the life of someone doing this job actually look like? Are you just coding eight hours a day, all day, every day? Like, what is the difference between Python and React? Like all that kind of stuff. And so I just started writing it. (laughs) And I just wanted it. I wanted it to be helpful for people that are trying to make that career change. Sounds incredible. And we're going to link it uh, high up in the show notes for anybody to check out. Looking at the table of contents, it seems like the book is almost split into two parts, which is like the first part could be about sort of what to expect, the difference between these technologies, what what to expect as a, a day in the life of a developer. It's really important you know this before kind of committing to the path. And then a little bit later in the book, towards the second half, you start to write a lot about portfolios and job titles and something called the targeted job hunt. Maybe you can tell us about how you got your first job as a developer, because I'm willing to bet that some of the things that helped you are the same things you write about in the book and we can definitely connect the dots where it makes sense. Definitely. I wanted the book to include not only my experience, but general experiences. But of course, it's very informed by my own experience. And for me, because I'm social, extroverted, come from sales, I was very comfortable with kind of cold calling folks and reaching out to people at companies that I was interested in and just asking for coffee chats and that kind of stuff. And that helped me build a community. Um, But ultimately, the job that I ended up getting, it was a woman that worked for my boot camp. I had met her in the beginning and then she had moved to another role. So she wasn't really directly involved with me. But when we had met, I guess we had chatted for long enough for her to remember me. And when I was coming towards the end of my boot camp, she mentioned that she had a friend who was an engineering manager who was hiring a junior developer and she encouraged me to apply. And she said that she would mention my name. You know, like that doesn't necessarily get you the job. And it's always easy in hindsight to look back and say like, okay, that was the connection that ended up, you know, she got my name out of that pile of resumes and into the hands of a manager, uh, which I think is such an important step, especially in that first job, just to make sure that someone sees your resume. Was there a reason in particular that she sort of connected you rather than somebody else? I don't know. You know, I don't know if I've ever asked her, but I think it helped that we were staying sort of in touch. 
we were Twitter friends and had some like chatter back and forth on there. It might have even just been like a top of mind thing because she hadn't necessarily seen my work or known anything too specific about me. That's so powerful though, like being friends of mind. And there's this idea in like uh, consumer psychology called the uh, like mere exposure effect, which says that consumers are more likely to buy something they're familiar with, probably because they trust it in some way. I wouldn't underrate that at all. Like I, I think you mentioned Twitter, right? Which is probably one of the best ways to not only stay connected, a Rolodex can help you keep someone's contact details. But the benefit of Twitter is apart from connecting you, if you're active on the platform, even subtly, right? Like say you build a portfolio and you tweet about that or, or put it in your bio, for example, you're kind of not actively, but at the same time, you are creating opportunities for yourself. And I wonder if this is similar to your experience. Yeah. And that's one of the big reasons that I talk about like building a community. And I try not to use the word networking because I don't love it. It gives me this like image of just a bunch of like stuffy men in suits standing around a conference room. (laughs) Yeah. But like building a community and like, yeah, finding that company you're interested, whether they're hiring or not, and reaching out to someone asking them to go for coffee. Like worst case scenario, you have a conversation, you learn about them. But like best case scenario, then, you know, a month down the road, someone at that company is like, you know, maybe we hire a junior. And that person is like, oh, I actually know someone like and you'd never know until you're looking back, like which of those connections is going to be the one that ends up working out. I do think that's what's one of the things that's powerful about building a community, but also you can learn so much from the community. And I've learned so much from the tech Twitter community. I find it to be a really powerful tool, even like just asking folks for resources. I asked people like, you know, when I was struggling learning React and I just said like, does anyone have any suggestions? And I think someone linked like West Boss's React course. And then I think I used that course like three times and it really helped me. And then I fell in love with React and then I was looking for a job in React. And so I think that community can be a really powerful tool and, you know, you can learn so much from it. But then also, like you were saying, people might be like, oh, yeah, I know someone and they're always asking questions and they're really interested in learning and they've shared a little bit about their journey and that could leave an impact on someone. One of the things I did that made the biggest impact on my journey and my understanding of the industry was I tweeted out something along the lines of like, I'm learning to, I'm looking to put that education into the context of a real job. Is there anyone in the Portland area who would be willing to let me shadow them for part of a day? And I think at the time, you know, I had a few hundred followers, nothing too big. No one really knew me. And I got six different responses and I shadowed six different people. And one of them was Scott Hanselman. He reached out. I think someone might have tagged him in the post and he was like, absolutely. I would love to have you shadow me. And he brought me along for a meeting that he had and just taught me as much as he could. And he was just so generous with his time. And I don't think I realized how lucky I was at the time to be able to soak up knowledge from him. But it was just, it's so cool. And there's so many people in the tech community like that. I feel, I find the tech community to just be overwhelmingly welcoming compared to maybe what I expected. I think people are so happy to share knowledge and so happy to bring other people in. And 
that's not unfortunately always reflected in job boards. But I think when you talk to the humans, there is so much of that. I can't believe that through that tweet at a time when you were brand new to the community, essentially, Scott Hanselman, of all people, reached out and, and followed up. Uh, Scott's one of my inspirations and he's been a guest on the podcast before. We can we can link that in the show notes as well. Computers are stupid. And most non-technical people enter the world assuming that computers are smarter than they are. We make people feel bad if they are not a computer person. I always think about going to the family holiday party or the Thanksgiving or the Christmas thing. And whenever someone I meet, like a cousin I haven't seen, they go, oh, you're a computer person? I'm not a computer person. What did we do to make you feel that the computer was smarter than you? Computer's dumb. It's not your fault. We put the button in the wrong place, right? That's on me. If Windows makes you feel bad, that's my fault. Was he just as much as smart and kind in person as he is online? Oh, yes. I mean, just the fact that he reached out and picked me up from my house to take me along to his meeting. That was so unnecessarily kind. Like, no one would expect him to do that. And he knew so much. I think at the time I was probably overwhelmed um, because I was three or four months into my coding boot camp. And he, you know, was Scott Hanselman. He, he knows a lot. Um, so, but yeah, he he was great. And he, he worked to like explain things to me on my level. And I thought that was so great. In the tech world, we're all building on each other's work and standing on the shoulders of giants. So many of us have empathy for people who are struggling because like you say, Caitlin, even the more experienced experienced developers need help from time to time and are often very happy to pay it forward. Yeah, it's it's great. It's interesting that you identify as an extrovert and you worked in sales because I think this meant that your personality lended itself to putting yourself out there a bit and not being shy to strike up a conversation, which led to an interview you described, but also some of these great opportunities to shadow people like Scott. I'm wondering if it's possible to, it's a very hard thing to do to sort of extract insights from maybe just the way you think by default, but for anybody who maybe is wondering how to get out there a little bit more and maybe a bit shy in the process. Is there any advice you could offer? I do recognize that, you know, because I have this background of cold calling and am a natural extrovert that certain stuff comes easier to me. Whenever I talk to people who feel like they're more shy and that's something that's really scary for them, like I want to say I have like only had good experiences. I think like asking questions and coming from a place of wanting to learn is a great way to start in this industry because it's it is such an industry of learning and one of the things I like to take advantage of, like when we were talking about chatting on Twitter, is like people love talking about what they know and showing off knowledge that they have. And I love to take advantage of that. And the way you take advantage of that is just by asking a question and showing interest in learning something. So if you're thinking about like reaching out to someone or tweeting about something, I would just come from a place of like trying to learn. And I think that that is often very well received in this industry. So just saying something like, if you're reaching out to someone specifically, like, hey, I saw your career path and... I see that you're working in Angular and I've been learning it recently and I'm really interested in it. This is specifically one of the things I'm working on right now or one of the things I'm learning about. Do you have time to chat and 
chat more about it or let me pick your brain or something like that. And I think that is one of the ways that people just, they're going to be excited to talk about it. Most people, not everyone. Sometimes you'll get no response, but that's like, for me, that was the worst case scenario was no response. Anytime I got a response, it was positive. It was other people wanting to talk about what they had learned, their struggles, their path. You know, it's really interesting because it is a bit of a numbers game as well, as is the case with applying to jobs sometimes. Like you might reach out to 10 people. You know, if one person replies, that's that's actually all you need, to be honest. And if I could just piggyback on your advice, really, Caitlin, people who you're most likely to see on Twitter at the top level, like tweeting popular tweets, probably have big audiences and possibly they're content creators who are also full-time developers and they're, and they're busy and they're trying to make their efforts scale by creating content instead of helping people one-on-one. And that's their prerogative and that's completely fair enough. And some of them might be receptive, sure. But what I would suggest is going into the thread, into the comments and seeing who's engaging in an interesting way. Of course, you can extend this advice to places like Dev2 as well, reading uh, comments and seeing who's chiming in and, and seems kind and helpful because, you know, follow account on a, on a platform like Twitter is a bit of a vanity metric. Like it really means nothing about their knowledge, you know, their ability to teach and their willingness to help you out. So of course it'd be amazing to get a session with Scott or Wes Boz or Caitlin for that matter. But at the same time, there's hundreds of people who, if you look in the right place, I think can be super helpful and impactful in your career. Yeah, that's great advice looking in the, in the thread. Coming full circle a little bit and sort of back to your foray into tech. You mentioned that it was through this connection, essentially, that you managed to get the tech interview, uh, but you also made it very clear that there was a tech interview. And networking, for most of us, most of the time, it's really just that entry point into the interview seats. What was your experience interviewing? And are there any sort of uh, topics about interviewing in your book? The job that I ended up getting, it was the third job that I had gone through interview processes with. The first one was a leak code style test that I failed miserably. And then the second was kind of an in-person live coding experience with someone literally standing over my shoulder. That one, I didn't fail miserably, but it was a small company and I don't think I had enough of a skill set to exist on such a small team. And then the third one, the job that I ended up getting, it was yeah, a series of interviews, you know, the HR screen and then a manager conversation with the manager asked one or two technical questions like, what are your thoughts on object oriented programming or, you know, what's your style of testing? How do you test that kind of thing? And then I moved on to a final in-person round that was four interviews, I believe, back to back. And it was conversations with different members of the team. Some of them were more technical. They actually didn't have me live code or anything or do a take home, um, which I really appreciated. What they did was they took code from my portfolio projects that I had submitted as part of my resume and they asked me about the code that I had already written. I love that. I wish more companies would do that, especially for juniors, because these technical interviews are can be very intimidating and it can be hard to think on the spot, especially when you're newer to the industry. So that was that was a great experience, I guess. Um, and it, it ended up meaning that I was leaning more on my communication skills, which I felt stronger about. And I could talk about some of the thinking behind code I'd written and I could reflect on some code that even at the time it was like, I mean, code I wrote a month ago and I would be like, oh, well, I wouldn't do it that way 
way now, and I could explain why. There was an element of uh, selling yourself, which is uh, perfect if you worked in sales, essentially. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I do talk in the book, I do talk about like the different kinds of interviews you might face because there's so many different kinds. And I don't think I realized how, I mean, the, the technical interview process is, is hard and it can make developers of all levels feel just, <laughs> I don't know, like they don't know enough, like they're not good enough. It's, I personally think the technical interview process is quite broken in this industry, but unfortunately for now, it is still the way that it is. And so I think for folks getting into it, I would say if you get in that first technical interview and you fail it, you are in really good company. I'm going to like make a blanket statement that I have no business making. Everyone has failed a technical interview and you learn more like this last round, I'm in the third job that I've had since entering the industry. And about a year ago, I started the job I have now. And when I was interviewing for this and other jobs, I I failed a lot of interviews. There were some that I walked away and thought like, wow, I legitimately embarrassed myself. Like, did I not know what to do with an object? You thought that at the time, do you still think it in retrospect? I mean, it doesn't hurt <laughs> the way it did, but <laughs> there's some interviews I look back on. I'm like, wow, I, you know, my mind drew a blank or whatever it was. And it just happens. And for me, I think everyone's different. But for me, it was those like first few that I felt like I really stumbled through. And then, you know, the next ones, I felt a little more prepared and maybe it was just nerves or whatever. But I, with each interview, I felt a little like more and more confident and whether I actually got better at the coding technical bits, I don't know, but I think confidence makes a difference in those, especially if you're live coding with someone on the other side and and you can, you know, kind of try and keep a level head and keep a positive attitude. I think that can make all the difference, even if you're struggling to think of the right code to write. This is your point really, isn't it? Interviewing and coding are actually two discrete skills. And even though you were getting better at interviewing, you weren't getting better at coding necessarily. Yeah. Do you think it's a necessary evil? The technical interview process? No, I think that it could be built a lot better. I think that the way a lot of interviews that I've done have been structured, it's not reflective of what it's really like to be a developer. And I've had some really positive interviews, like the company I'm at now. I felt like that interview process, I felt like I was showing what I would really be like as a teammate on their team. And that to me makes me feel better about the company that I'm being hired onto as well. And there's other times where, you know, there's no conversation, there's no collaboration. It's just about what you have memorized off the top of your head and no Googling allowed. And, you know, you better not take too long to think. And that, that to me is just not the development experience. And so I am not a fan of that style of interview. I know that we have to have some sort of interview process in the industry, but I think there's a lot of companies that are, in my opinion, not doing it as well as they could have. That is such an excellent point, by the way, Caitlin, that like if they interview that way, that's a reflection of their values. And if they aren't your values, right, that means it's probably not a good culture fit in the first place. And to your point, you know, like there are other ways of doing interviews that perhaps 
reflect what you'd actually be like to work with, such as spending a day on site, for example, and getting paid for your efforts. That would be huge. I like that a lot. Yeah, the paid for your efforts thing is amazing. Not a lot of companies are doing that, but it can be very time consuming, especially if you're doing like a take home project. And if you're applying for a lot of jobs, that can be hard. And some companies will pay you for your time in those interviews, building those projects. And I think that's amazing as well, because it shows that they're serious on their side as well. Totally. They respect your time. And I think as well, depending on on your values and how important this is to you, maybe you've got a lot of savings. Maybe it's not a big deal to spend one day on site. But if maybe you're going to incur a cost because of that, for example, you spend a holiday day or or you, you somehow need to make other arrangements like childcare or something, it's more equitable. And I think that's important as well. Um, I'd, I'd love to see more of that personally, um, but I also appreciate that the industry is vast and different people value different things. Another thing to keep in mind is that, which can be hard to do because you're just so excited to get that first job. I know I had the mindset at the time of like, I'll take whatever I can get, but interviews are also your chance to interview the company. It has happened that in their first job, junior developers will get hired and the expectations are just wildly disproportional to their experience or no one on the team wants to be a mentor or there's no support. And so during the interviews, that's a great time to also try and see if you would be a fit there. Like one of my favorite questions to ask has always been like, are there people on your team that are excited about being a mentor or uh, bringing on a junior developer? And their answer to that will be very telling as to how you might feel on that team. What are some of the other like positive indicators a junior dev can look for during an interview? Maybe a different way of phrasing that question is like, how can companies support junior developers? And by extension, what could you look out for? One of the things that I look for before I even interview with a company, and it's not to say that I won't interview for a company if they don't have this, but I will look at their employees on LinkedIn and see if anyone else has a non-traditional background. And that, to me, can be a good indicator. Um, You know, if there's... 20 people there that came from boot camps. I'm like, all right, they understand what it's like to come from this background and they hopefully see it as a positive too, which I do. I think like when you come from a less traditional background, you have, you know, this diverse set of skills and life experience um, versus a company that doesn't have anybody. Then I would get nervous that they might not know what to expect from me. They might expect too much. Like a Pearson Spectre lit in suits where everybody comes from Harvard, for example. Yeah, and so... And if you, you know, come from some state school, they might look down on you, which is wrong, but you also don't want to be that person there that's being looked down on. And it might not be a supportive environment for you. And I think another thing that I like to ask about is continuous learning. Like some companies have time they set aside for continuous learning. Like the first company I worked at, it was two hours a week that you get to learn whatever you want to learn. You know, in theory, it's relevant to your work, but you don't have to be working during that time. And I think that can also lead to a very supportive environment for devs. Like for me in that time, in my first job, I did a book club. Um, We read Clean Code. I read with a couple, another junior developer, a couple more senior developers. And then I also went through a Udemy course on C Sharp with people of like all skill levels at the company. And so that to me, it, it was creating this environment of learning all together. And it made me see that I wasn't the only one that was learning. 
doing. And it helped me feel more comfortable reaching out to more senior developers with questions. It gave me some like good personal connections with the few people that were on those in those little groups. So I think asking about continuous learning and development is great in interviews too, to gauge that environment. This has been an epic interview because, you know, you changed career at 31. And I think it was in one of your presentations that I watched, you, you kind of put a quote on the screen and you pointed out that knowing what you want to do at 18 is a rare and special skill <laughs> that really resonated like a drum, because how can you know with such little life experience and most importantly, until you try something for a while. And this whole story and your advice, I think, is so it's so encouraging for anybody who is on that non-traditional path when you're changing careers sometimes it feels like you're starting from scratch and you know coding of all skills can be very intimidating at first what do you think like how much of your previous experience even if it seems totally unrelated comes with you and i'm curious about your specific experience as well sort of transitioning from something like sales which is very customer focused and essentially it's a kind of problem in a way like you're trying to you know close a deal remove any any blockers and things like that i'm just curious like did it feel like you were starting from scratch as as well and did you did you find over time that anything came with you in the beginning it sort of felt like I was starting from scratch. I knew that my sales background was helping me on the job hunt and that liking to talk and being an extrovert was probably helping me in interviews. But when I started the job, I wasn't sure what was helping me. It, it wasn't clear. And then over time, there's been stuff that's come out of the woodwork when I've like had these aha moments. For example, when I was in my previous position and I've been leaning more front end. I started as kind of full stack and now I lean much more front end. And I was really interested in user experience and how users navigate the site and what the experience is like for them. And part of me was like, oh, this makes sense. It's because, you know, when I was in sales, it was always thinking about what does the other person need? And that informs how I sell to them. And then I had someone tell me and they're like, well, you know, it's also your degree in psychology. Your brain is so like in tune to thinking about like how other people think. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> and ever since then, I can, I lean into user experience and like, I love talking about it and thinking about it and I develop with it in mind. And I think that makes me a stronger front end developer because of both my degree in psychology and my sales background. And so for me, those were the like clear lines that I ended up drawing from, you know, education to one career to the other. I see that in other people too, like they, it's always interesting to learn about people's backgrounds and it can be easier sometimes to see from the outside, like, oh, I can see how this career informed your skills. And so if you're a career changer, that's a great question to ask on like a coffee chat, talking to someone who's also a career changer and saying like, you know what, I've been a nurse, like, how do you think that would help me in this role? And they might be able to draw those connections for you that then you can, you know, pass on to prospective employers and say like, you know, I was a nurse and that makes me compassionate and great with people and a fantastic multitasker and all that stuff. That's an amazing tip and a bit of advice because you know your experience, you know what you've been doing and what you're probably good at and what people have told you you are good at in the role. But because you've never set foot in a development team, you don't know what they value and you can't connect the dots. But by bouncing off a mentor, for example, they might be able to help you. That's a great piece of advice and a wonderful note to end on, to be honest, Caitlin. I've had an amazing chat. The only thing I wanted to quickly point out in response to your last 
answer is you said something like, because I was more extroverted and liked talking, that might help me with interviews. But one thing I've realized is that just because someone likes talking, that doesn't mean they're a good communicator or they're charming. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> and at the same time, I've met plenty of charming and well-communicated introverts. So, you know, no matter which way you lean on the introversion, extroversion spectrum, there's a path forward for you. And I'm sure this advice from Caitlin is going to help a lot. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me on the Scrimba podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Caitlin Greffley. Thanks for listening, and please remember to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned in this episode, as well as the ways to connect with Caitlin. If you made it this far, please consider subscribing. You can follow the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really, really, really enjoy our show, we'd be super thankful if you also left us a review or a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever is your podcast app of choice. The podcast is hosted by Alex Booker. You can find his Twitter handle in the show notes. I'm your producer, Jan, and we'll see you again next Tuesday.